0: This is the 11th Psalm now that we've done over the summer, and I'd invite you to open up your Bibles right in the middle of your Bible. If you do not have a Bible, there's some available in the back, or you can uh, get one on your way out or right now if you need one, we'd invite you to do that. But please open your Bibles to Psalm 11 and follow along as I read, and we'll begin for this morning. Psalm 11. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire, sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup, for the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to your word this morning expectant that you will speak to us here I do not presume upon your kindness as if you owe us anything but Lord the record of your faithfulness is that you work through your spirit and through your word to teach us to encourage us to bring about growth and change so this morning Lord For those of us who are trusting in our own strength. I pray that this would be an encouragement to turn from self-sufficiency to the all-sufficient God. That we would make you our refuge and our strength. Thank you for this facility that we have to meet in, Lord. Thank you for all of your kindness to our church. We ask that once again you show your kindness by sending your spirit here to open our understanding, open the eyes of our heart that we can see and understand what is in your word. And would the end, the result of our time now together, be that we know you, that we love you, that we can worship you with greater capacity because of the work that you've done. So please come and do this work, Lord. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Psalm 11 is both a declaration and an explanation. It is David's declaration of his trust in God in the middle of difficult circumstances. Hopefully this sounds really familiar at this point. We have already seen this a number of times even in these first 11 Psalms. But the Bible repeats because God knows we need to hear it over and over again. So this is David's declaration of trust. He has made the Lord his refuge. And then he also explains why it is that God can be trusted. In fact, if we look at the psalm, you could take verse 1 and verse 7 and just squeeze them together. And it would make sense. We could say, "...in the Lord I take refuge, for the Lord is righteous." But we go beyond that in the psalm, and God in His mercy didn't just give us the fact of what we need to know, but He fills in some of the details, some of the explanation as to why we can trust God in our times of need. And if we did that, if we just had the opening and the ending and we forgot all the middle of stuff, we would miss a lot of the truth that undergirds or supports these statements that David is making about making the Lord his refuge. So it's important that we look at this whole thing together. My goal for this morning is that after we have gone through this psalm, everyone in this room would be able to confidently say, the Lord is my refuge. And we'll talk about what that means as we go through. That's my goal, and I'm praying that the Lord would would do it. So let's work through in order, as we usually do, starting with verse 1. First point this morning, David's declaration. David's declaration. Let's begin with that phrase right in verse 1. In the Lord I take refuge. Those six words carry a tremendous amount of significance and weight the idea of God being a refuge, a, a place of shelter, a protection for his people is a common theme in the Bible and especially in the book of Psalms. We've seen this already as we've worked through, but when, when is it especially important to have a refuge? The Bible talks a lot about this, about the Lord being a strong tower, it talks about him being a protection, a safety, but when do we need that? If we were honest, we'd probably say all the time. But there are unique and special times when we need a refuge, when things get out of control, when you do not have the ability to either understand or deal with the circumstances of your life. When things get rocky, we need a solid place. We need a rock of ages, someone to run to for our refuge. David's confidence here, his declaration is that he has made God his refuge. We've seen this earlier. Psalm 3, verse 3. You, O Lord, are a shield about me. It's David's protection. Psalm 7, verse 1. O Lord, my God, in you do I take refuge. And if we were to go on in the Psalms, which, Lord willing, we do eventually, Psalm 16 opens with this wonderful statement. Preserve me, O God, for in you I have taken refuge. Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Psalm 71, be to me a rock of refuge to which I may continually come. 47 times in the book of Psalms, God is described as being a refuge for his people. This is why we are going to take the next 12 summers and preach through the Psalms because I want us as a church, no matter what comes, to be able to say, I have made the Lord my refuge. Therefore, I will not fear. Nobody knows what the future is going to bring. Nobody knows. And we've never known. It's just that right now, things seem especially unstable, especially weird. This does not affect God's plan. This does not affect His ability to care for and provide and be a refuge for His people. Whether it's abandonment, whether it's persecution, whether it's death, whether it's fear, no matter what it is, as believers in Jesus, we need to have the confidence to say, God is my refuge. Can you imagine a church full of people who confidently say, God is my refuge? Men who, like the book of Proverbs say, are bold as lions and women who laugh at the calamity to come because we have made God our refuge. Would God be pleased to do this here? This is David's declaration. I have made the Lord my refuge. Now, as we move on in the psalm, we get to our second point, bad advice. Bad advice. Now, whether this is David reminding himself or rehashing something that's gone on in his mind or whether this is his advisors counseling him for this situation, which is the way that I read the text, it doesn't really change this conversation he's having in verses 1b through 3. It seems like this psalm picks up in the middle of a conversation. David has been given this bad advice. And now he's looking at this and saying, how could you say this? How could you say to me that I should get out of here and run away and flee? So we're, we're picking up somewhat in the middle. And now most people agree that this was probably when David was on the run from Saul, who was trying to kill him. And the people around him, his advisors who are supposed to give him sage words of wisdom and and lead him in the right direction have really dropped the ball, I think, in what's going on here. What David writes in Psalm 11 is in response to what they have told him. Listen to this bad advice and then I'm going to explain why I think this is truly bad advice. They tell him, flee like a bird to your mountain. For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed what can the righteous do Now admittedly on the surface this might seem like good advice you're in a tight spot things are getting a little crazy you better get out Right we would probably all say you know this isn't that wild of a this is I can understand what's going on here But there's a problem David knows something that these advisors didn't know or didn't believe that he had made the Lord his refuge so when they come to him and they say you know what David things are getting really rough as your advisors we suggest that you get out go flee get away go to where you know you'll be safe what they are saying in essence is we know that you have admitted and you have declared to us that you have made the Lord your refuge but you know what it's time you, you quit, quit that this is getting real God isn't going to come to your aid. You need to get out. You need to flee to your mountain. Go. This overlooks the fact, the truth, that David has made God his refuge. The reason this advice falls short is because it is ignorant, I believe, of the power of God to preserve his people. David has not built up a refuge from himself. He is not relying on his own human wisdom or his strength. He has said, in the Lord I take refuge. And so when they tell him, you got to get out of here, they're saying, David, God isn't going to come through for you. I know you've said that. I know you believe in God. You got to do something. You got to get out. It's interesting, I think, that in verse one it says, flee like a bird to your mountain. Now, in Israel, and especially in this poetic language, which the Psalms are, deliverance, salvation was always on high. It was up, elevated. They go up to the mountain of the Lord. Deliverance comes from on high. Conversely, you go down to the pit. You go down to death. So they're saying, look, you know that deliverance is up. You've got to go up. You've got to get away from this. But more than just the directional things here, notice that they say, your mountain. Go to your mountain. They are encouraging David to flee to his own version of refuge. Go to the place you know where you're going to be safe. Go to where you're going to be familiar. You can't trust God, David, get out. But as I said before, David had confidence in someone so much greater than himself. And he knew something that these advisors didn't know. He knew Psalm 121. You know Psalm 121. I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? It doesn't come from the hills. It comes from the Lord the maker of heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. And on the psalm goes about the care and the provision that God has for his people. David knew this. He knew his help didn't come from the mountain. It didn't come from his own ability to get himself out of the situation. You either believe that God can care for you or you don't. And David did. David had confidence that God would be his refuge. Now, what is his response to this bad advice? How does he answer? How would you answer? If someone comes to you and says, I've just been noticing you're getting yourself into a pretty bad spot. I know you believe in God and all that stuff, but you you got you to gotta get out. What would you do? How do you respond to those kinds of things? We see David's response in our third point. Number three, a statement of truth. A statement of truth. I think that the example David is setting for us here in Psalm 11 is so valuable. He responds to the situation by reminding himself and the people around him of what is true. Now, when we are pressed, I'll speak personally because this is me. When I am pressed, When I am backed into a corner or forced to deal with things that I don't know how to deal with, it is so easy to believe what is untrue. It is so easy to be irrational in your thinking and start to believe in a lie. This is the way our minds work. I don't think I'm the only one but we tend to forget what is true and we start to imagine all, all kinds of things. And really what we need to do is what David's doing here to remind himself of what is true. His example is fantastic. In response to this bad advice, this fear, he makes two statements. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. And in those statements, we see assurance for the heart and we see assurance for the mind. The temple relates to the heart, the relational aspect of our faith. The throne being in heaven refers to the mind, the confidence that we can know objectively God is in control. I'm going to look at these in reverse order, starting with the mind. God being seated on his throne is symbolic in Scripture of his absolute sovereignty over the affairs of the world. God is not in heaven, pacing back and forth, wringing his hands, wondering what's going to happen, just waiting for something to go so that he can respond to it. That is not the picture the Bible gives us of God. The Lord's throne is in heaven. He is seated. He is calm. And he is absolutely in control of his creation. Like I said a minute ago, when things get out of control, we all know that our minds start to race. When you can't control what's going on, here's what I do. I start to make lists. Anybody else? List makers out here? Okay, what do I need to do? Well, first we have to do this, we have to do this. You have to get into it. you got to figure it out, right? That's what happens when we get into panic mode. We start to turn to our own devices. We need this, I need this reminder that God is seated on his throne and that his throne is in heaven, meaning it is unaffected by the affairs of men. The turmoil, the mandates, the requirements, everything that's going on is in no way affecting God's good plan for this world do you believe that God's throne is in heaven and he is firmly established there this gives us confidence for our mind you don't have to let your mind wander you don't have to let it go and wonder what's going to go on I don't know what to do that's okay God does He's seated on his throne. Make the Lord your refuge and trust that he'll do the right thing. The Lord being seated on his throne is the assurance for our mind, but also knowing that the Lord is in his holy temple is a comfort for our heart. Comfort for our heart. The temple was the place where you went in David's day to have communion with God, to be near God. Psalm 27, David says he goes to the temple to behold the beauty of the Lord. He goes there to be in the presence of God. So it's, it's not just that God is removed and in control in some sort of objective, cold, mechanical kind of a way. But David wants us to know that he is also near. We have relationship with him by his grace. The fact that God is in his temple brings a level of comfort and assurance. It is the relational aspect of our faith. God's rule on his throne and his relational nearness are then the comforts for both our heart and our mind. Next in David's statement of truth, he says that the Lord sees, that he tests The children of man. Now, don't be thrown off by this eyelid language here. Let me explain what's going on. In Hebrew, there are oftentimes several words that refer to the same thing. They might refer to a different aspect of the thing. So, there's actually like four words that refer to the eye in Hebrew. And they all have slightly different meaning. And what this word is, translated in English as eyelids, is also pupils. And so the picture that we should get when it talks about the eyelids of the Lord watching is a close and scrutinizing look. What happens when you squint at something and you're trying really hard to focus on it? All that's visible are your pupils and you're blocking everything out and putting your full attention on this thing. What David is painting for us here is a picture of God intently watching the actions of men and judging according to their deeds. The word test here is the same word used by jewelers when they refine precious metals to test its worth, to determine its value. Now God does not test people in a uh, temptation sort of way James makes that really clear we'll get to that soon in the exhortations but god does test as in a refining as in a proving we've already seen the contrast here in the psalms of the righteous and the wicked remember psalm 1 and 2 with that really clear division there and so when god tests the righteous To prove or strengthen them, the same testing produces something very different for the wicked. I also think it's really interesting that he uses this phrase, the portion of their cup. You see that? In the ancient Near East, the way that things would go in the household was that the father had a pitcher or a a larger container of drink. And people in the family, children, spouse, would come with their empty cup and the father would give them what was called the portion of their cup. He was the one providing. He was the one giving. They would receive the portion of their cup. Sometimes this was uh, in response or it was uh, based on what had happened or if they had done really well. But most of the time it was just symbolic of the fact that the father was the one supplying the father was the one giving okay we see this positively in psalm 16 david says the lord is my chosen portion and my cup he holds my lot in psalm 16 david is saying god himself is his portion what fills him but back in psalm 11 the portion of the wicked the thing that fills their cup so to speak is the righteous judgment of God. Fire, sulfur, and a scorching wind. Now you might think, scorching wind, come on, it got really hot this summer and it was blowing hot, that can't be that bad. But again, there are some really interesting things that I found when I was studying this psalm. In Israel, about two times a year, between spring and summer and then again between summer and winter, there was this wind that would blow over the desert and literally overnight it could turn green vegetation brown, dead. And it would signal the change of the seasons. So this scorching wind is not just an uncomfortable kind of, <clears throat> I wish it was a little cooler out today, kind of a thing. This is destruction, death And of course, fire and sulfur. Remember from the book of Genesis, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, where the wickedness was so unbelievably prevalent that God literally rains fire from the sky and destroys the wicked. This is the portion of their cup. This is what the Father is pouring out in response to what He sees when He tests the children of men. how thankful we should be for the shield and protection of Jesus Christ which covers us from the wrath of God God's judgment on the wicked is absolutely righteous we talked about this in Psalm 7 God does not and cannot tolerate the wicked <clears throat> I don't know if you have categories for this in your mind, but the Bible tells us very clearly, God is a God who hates. You okay with that? You have a category in your mind to understand that God has burning anger against the trespass of His decree, that there is punishment being poured out right now and coming in the future because of the neglect of God's law. He's not simply disappointed with the acts of the wicked and just hoping that they're going to change their ways. Man, I really wish they'd do that different. This is intense, righteous, and perfect hatred of the wicked and their wicked ways. Now why is it That God has this hatred. Why this anger against sin? Look at verse 7 in our text. Because the Lord is righteous, He loves righteous deeds. In His righteousness, there is no room in God for anything less than perfection. He cannot tolerate the wicked. He cannot tolerate their schemes. And when he looks at the children of men with this this scrutiny that we saw earlier, his eye is testing, his anger is stirred into action because of what he sees. And we call that action the wrath of God against sin. We need to have categories for this in our theology because without the wrath of God, there is no justice in the world. Imagine if nothing bothered God. What if he just observed everything that went on and nothing got him up? What hope would you ever have of calling out to God for help, saying, I was wronged, I was sinned against, I was mistreated. God goes, I don't care, it doesn't really bother me. (laughs) What kind of God would that be? We have to understand that when God looks at the children of men and He sees the wickedness, He is not indifferent. But He will judge. And the most harsh terms are used here of fire, sulfur, and a death-bringing wind. I am thankful that God is not only a God of wrath, however. I want to focus on this last line here as we come to a close. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold His face. I'm so thankful that God is a God of love. A God who loves His children, who protects and cares for them. He takes great pleasure in us, when we follow his will and when we obey his commandments, when we live lives by the power of his spirit that honor him and please him. The promise at the end of this chapter when David says the upright shall behold his face would have been unimaginable for the Hebrew people. As far back as they could remember, as far back as their tradition goes, God has never been seen because the thing that they did very well was to pound into the people the holiness, the separateness of God. You cannot be in the presence of God as a sinful person. So when David says, the upright will see, will behold the face of God, what must that have sounded like? Even Moses who was arguably the greatest of the patriarchs, was not allowed to see God, but was hidden in the rock, Exodus 33 and 34, and God passed in front of him. Jesus uses the same language, the the greater David now speaking the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall, what? See God. You see, obedience, following righteousness rather than wickedness, is not just a set of requirements that God arbitrarily gives to us for no good reason. The end of obedience, the goal of righteousness, is that we behold the face of God. The end of Psalm 16. In your presence is fullness. Of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Do you want that? Then follow the path of righteousness, the end of which is the face of God. Now, I want to close by asking a question, and this has to do with something we saw earlier in the psalm here. Um, the, the bad advice that David got was to, to flee to his mountain. Remember that? Get away. Just get out of there, go to your own refuge. So I want to ask, what is your mountain? What is the place that you turn to when you're backed into it? We all have this. Hopefully, little by little, we're growing in Christ and we're coming to depend on God more, but we all have something we turn to. When things get rough, when the foundations are shaken, where do you go? What's your mountain? I go to control. I want to to regulate what's going on. If I feel out of control, everything's upside down. Anybody else? What about your job? Some of us find a lot of identity in what we do. Turn to that. Maybe you turn to your spouse in an unhelpful way. Turn to self-confidence, substance, addictions. Where do you go? The answer that this psalm is giving us is that we ought to as those who have been purchased by the blood of Jesus make the Lord our mountain. Make Him our refuge. Stop going to your own resources. If they haven't failed you yet, they will very soon. (laughs) The Lord is rich in mercy. His loving kindness never comes to an end. It is folly for us to get in bad situations and then turn to ourselves. Because ultimately we have no resource outside of what God gives us. So my encouragement, my exhortation to you this morning, turn away from self. Trust in God. Make the Lord your refuge. And He promises to be faithful to that. It doesn't mean that everything's going to be smooth. You know that. That does not mean that everything will go your way. But what it does mean is that when you are there, when you are in it, you aren't in it alone. Make God your refuge and He will carry you through. It's the promise of this psalm. It is the promise of the Word of God and it's my hope for us as a church. Trust that the Lord is faithful. Trust that He is true and trust that He is the refuge for all who hope in Him. Let's pray together. Lord, the only way that this can happen, the only way that I will be able to turn away from my own strength and truly trust in you is if you, by your Holy Spirit and through your word, change my heart. I can change the external things, I can make it look like everything is good but it takes a work of your grace to transform a heart. So Father, on behalf of this congregation, I plead with you. Do this work in all of us. Remove from us the tendency to want to stand on our own and rely upon our strength to to flee to our own mountain. But would each of us here, from the youngest to the oldest, make you the Lord our God a refuge. And would you be faithful to us, God, as you always have been. We put our hope and our trust in you because you are worthy of being hoped in and being trusted. Thank you for this word, Lord. Would it be an encouragement to those who need it and a challenge to those who need it. I pray in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.